0: Let's pray together. Hello, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it and by it. We thank you for the salvation that you have enacted and delivered to us in and through Jesus. Pray that you would open our eyes to him and to you, uh, the ways in which the Holy Spirit is working in our lives as we come before your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, today we're, we're starting a new series on Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, which we'll be going through together throughout Epiphany. So today and then the next the following six weeks. And as we're starting this new series, I thought it would be helpful to maybe just give you um, uh, a bit of a sort of insight into how I've been choosing these various series that we've been going through throughout COVID. And basically what I've been trying to do is alternate uh, between series that focus specifically on Jesus knowing that it's him who we need to fix our eyes upon during this challenging time. And with series that invite us to focus on our own emotional state during this difficult time, um, so that we can be attentive to where it is that we need Jesus to come and minister to us during this difficult time. So the series on the Lord's Prayer, the Book of Lamentations, and the Psalms of Ascent, we're all focusing on our own needs, the state of our own souls. During this challenging time, trying to help us come before God um, in need of his love and his grace. And then the series on the book of Revelation, Jesus's I Am statements, and now this series on Colossians are all about focusing on Christ himself. Being reminded that he is sovereign and in control, and in him all things hold together. I just want you to hear, we'll be going through this passage next week, but I just want you to hear these words from Colossians 1:15 to 17, which is basically um, the passage that I just kept having in mind as I was thinking about this series. Paul says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's the reminder that I think we need at a time like this. That in Jesus, all things hold together. Nothing is outside of his purview, his power, and his grace. So we'll take these seven weeks of epiphany to to focus on that and reflect upon that. And just by way of a quick introduction to the letter of Colossians itself, this letter was written, I think, by Paul from prison. He says that specifically in chapter 4, verse 3, and it was likely a prison in Ephesus. The letter was written to a young church. Uh, They're likely new believers from a pagan background. But Paul doesn't know them personally. Colossians 1.4, as we heard today, says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So he's hearing of the faith that they have. Somebody else has has, um, shared the faith with them and led them to the Lord. Likely that person is Epaphras, Paul's beloved servant, um, from whom they they learned the faith, it says in verse 7. So he specifically evangelized them and likely was the one who told Paul about their faith. And Paul, I think, is writing this letter for three main reasons. The first reason he's writing the letter is to celebrate with these new Christians, to celebrate the mighty work that God has done in their lives, to deliver them from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of his beloved son, which he says in verse 13. So he's writing to celebrate their faith with them and this mighty work that God has done. Secondly, he's writing to warn them of potential pitfalls and dangers that surround them. Paul is well aware of some of the temptations and the false teachings that are going around in the area. And so he's writing to warn them about these, and we'll see that particularly in chapter 2. And then third, he's writing to strengthen and encourage their faith and really ground them in this new reality of who they are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 7 says he wants them to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in their faith. And I think that's a big part of what this letter is all about, grounding them in their new reality in their life in Christ. So this letter is about celebrating the faith of these young Christians. It's about warning them of potential dangers that are out there and grounding them in their new life in Jesus. And our passage from today, these first 14 verses of Colossians, are mostly about celebrating their faith and then primarily about grounding them in their new life in Christ. So the letter begins with Paul celebrating this amazing work that God has brought about in their lives. Verses 3 and 4 say, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, we're rejoicing with you. We're celebrating with you. We're giving thanks to God always for you. So there's this deep sense of joy and encouragement and celebration that pervades this letter, particularly this first chapter. And then this passage also encourages them to grow in their faith. Verses 9 through 12 say, And so from the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they may may grow in wisdom and understanding. Paul's praying for this. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it says, fully pleasing to him. So not just growing in mental understanding and mental acuity, Uh, but walking in a manner of worthy, uh, that's worthy of God, that honors him, bearing fruit, chapter uh, verse 10 says, in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, with patience and joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's all about praying for these Christians to grow in their faith, to grow in knowledge, to grow in understanding, to grow in their ability to live out their life in Christ Jesus. So he's wanting to ground them in who they are in Christ. And one of the reasons why I love this passage uh, so much, these opening verses of Colossians, is because of the vision that it sets out for us about the salvation that God offers. I think it's, it's large and generous and expansive, similar to what we saw last week in Isaiah. Too often, I think, uh, when, we, when we talk about the gospel, when we think about the gospel, it can be um, overly reductive and overly restrictive. So we could take something like the last line of our passage today, which says, in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which is a beautiful line, But the danger is we can make that the entire gospel. It's certainly part of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is a wonderful part of the gospel, but it's just that it's a part of the gospel. It's not the whole gospel. The danger is when we do that, uh, we do what Dallas Willard called reducing the gospel to a gospel of sin management. Where the gospel then just becomes about diagnosing and forgiving our own personal sins. Scott Cairns, who you heard me quote from last week, I read a poem of his last week. Um, I've been reading his poetry again recently. And so another poem came to mind this week that when I was thinking about this, where he takes this idea of, of sort of this diminished gospel of sin management, and then layers on top of it a theory of atonement that really just sees Jesus as a substitute for our sins and almost a begrudging one at that. And he writes a scathing poem called The Spiteful Jesus. And it goes like this. Not one whose courtesy and kiss, unsought, are nonetheless bestowed. Instead the largely more familiar blasphemy born to us in the little rock in the little boat that first cracked rock at Plymouth. Petty, plainly man-inflected, demigod, established as a club with which our paling generations might be beaten to a bland consistency. He is angry. He is just, and while he may have died for us, it was not gladly. The way his prophets talk, you'd think the whole thing, you'd think the whole affair had left him queerly out of sorts, unspeakably indignant, more than a little needy, and quick to dish out just desserts. Now, Scott himself has said that this is a particularly grumpy poem, and it actually ends on a a more positive note, but I think you get the sentiment from this. We've all had those experiences where the way that Jesus and his gospel are presented are so reduced and so truncated that it just seems like God is angry, God is vengeful, and he, he forgives us our sins simply because Jesus found a loophole for us, but he doesn't really want to. He's bitter and angry and kind of left upset by the whole thing. But that's not the vision of salvation that Colossians 1 puts forth. Colossians 1, of course, speaks of the forgiveness of sins because that's an important part of the gospel. It's not the whole thing. Instead, the vision that Paul paints for us of salvation in Colossians is large, and it's expansive, and it's robust. Eugene Peterson often talks of salvation. He uses the term the country of God's salvation to try to get us to think of the expansiveness and the largeness of God's saving work in Jesus. I like thinking about that. I think especially during a time like this where we're stuck indoors and feel things feel very constricted and um, we're feeling restricted. It's important for us to think about God's salvation in our lives as something that's open and expansive. So maybe just take a moment and think about that. Are there certain places that you think of where you feel like you could just breathe and feel open and free? Maybe it's going for a hike. Maybe it's walking in the woods. Maybe it's being by a large body of water. But just those spaces in which we feel like we just breathe deeply. We don't feel constricted. It feels open, vast, and just free. Well, I think that's the image... Of salvation in Colossians 1. It's not a reduced or truncated version of the gospel. It's a large and expansive, this this sort of glorious exploration of the country of God's salvation. The way I think about it is almost like Paul is orienting these new Christians to this new place, this new country of God's salvation that they have entered into. And he's sort of like a tour guide for them, pointing out landmarks and sites and, and aspects of the terrain for them. And as I read these these verses, there are seven things, (coughs) pardon me, seven things that come to mind in this expansive country of God's salvation, this life in Christ for us. The very first thing that I think Paul is, is drawing our attention to is that salvation means that we're drawn into a family. We heard this last week in Isaiah as well. We're not just isolated individuals who are alone. I think we all recognize the challenge and the pain of that. But salvation makes us part of God's family. It draws us into something larger than ourselves. Paul says this in in, in verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, not just a brother, but our brother, collectively. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossus, who are brothers and sisters in Christ now, grace to you and peace from God, our Father just sort of hammering it home in these first two verses. We are part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father together, and we are part of his family through his saving work in Jesus. I think this is particularly important for us during this season where things can be so divisive and divisions can be exploited by the enemy we are reminded how important it is for us to know that we are a family together. We're not all the same. We have lots of differences, but we have been drawn together in our differences into the one body of Christ, with God our Father, brothers and sisters together in him. I think it's important that we commit ourselves to that, to bear with one another's burdens, to not turn on one another, to not label one another, to not retract from the fellowship, but to commit to pressing in together, what it means to be part of the family of God. Different, yes, but one in Christ. Secondly, um, this passage reminds us that our salvation makes us people of faith, hope, and love. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's this trinity that Paul is, is known for, faith, hope, and love, faith, love, and hope. And it reminds us that these are foundations of our faith, that we are people of faith, people of trust people who live secure in the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have to thrash about in fear or insecurity. We can trust in God. That our faith and our trust in him enables us to love in the way of Jesus. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to worry um, that people won't love us in return or that it's it's too risky and it's not worth it we can just freely love because he loved us first and gave himself for us and that faith and that love spurs hope in us because of the certainty that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord because of the resurrection because of the ascension because he will come again and so all this is part of the expansive salvation that we have in Jesus. We are, we are people of faith, hope, and love. Faith, love, and hope. Third, God's generous, life-giving salvation makes us generous and generative people as well. Verse 6 goes on and says, The whole world is bearing fruit and increasing because of the gospel. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? The whole world is bearing fruit and increasing because of the gospel, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel takes root in our lives, and it bears fruit in our own lives, and then we participate in the work that God is doing. It makes us generous and generative people. True biblical faith does not make us insular, sitting around in a holy huddle, uh, just waiting for Jesus to return or for the world to burn or something like that. True biblical salvation invites us to participate in the good works that God is doing right now, bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. The whole world is bearing fruit and increasing through Jesus. And we get the great privilege of participating in that. So our salvation is not just for ourselves, but for the life of the world as well as we become part of the good fruit that God is bearing in the world. That's part of the vast expanse of salvation that we have entered into in Jesus. We're participating in his mission in the world. I was grateful for Brian's presentation last week. just reminded us the centrality of that. Fourth, God's salvation transforms our minds. It renews our imaginations, and it shows us how to live a fully human life, the life that we're always called in verses 9 and 10, Paul says, we're asking that you may be filled with the, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he wants our, our minds and our imaginations to be cleansed, to be able to see the world as it truly is, so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. God's wisdom and understanding enables us to see the world as it truly is. We live in a world that's constantly trying to confuse us, not enable us to see uh, the goodness of God all around us, the truth of God, the grace of God, the love of God so the gospel enables us to to sort of shed that stuff, to have our minds transformed, that we could see that all things are created by Christ and through Christ and for Christ, and all things are held together in him. This is the vision it's giving us. And then with that renewed and constantly renewing mind in Jesus, we then learn to live lives that God always intended us to live, bearing fruit of righteousness, living lives that are pleasing to him, caring for those in need around us, loving our neighbors, honoring God, which then goes on to manifest itself in an even deeper wisdom and understanding. It's this sort of beautifully cyclical thing that this passage points out. The more we open our eyes to God, the more he shows us how we're meant to live, the more we live in ways that God is calling us to live, caring for those around us, honoring him, loving him, the more we get to know him and see him and have a deeper awareness of him. This is all part of the expansive salvation that Paul paints in these opening verses. Fifth, God's glorious salvation enables us to endure hardships. Paul says this in verse 11, that God will strengthen us with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So what I want you to see here is that the salvation that Paul proclaims is not one without hardships. There's no denial of the fact that we are still living in a fallen and broken world. But Paul says that the salvation that God brings about in our lives strengthens us with God's power and God's might and God's strength so that we can endure hardships with both patience and joy. In that truncated version of the gospel, Far too often, hardships are not part of the way that we present the gospel. We're just going from blessing to blessing. Things are only good all the time. And when that's the case, it causes all sorts of pain and confusion and hurt for people when they do face difficult situations. They start to wonder, has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? But hardships are not a sign of God's lack of love or grace for you. What this passage reveals to us is that God's love and grace are manifested to you as he gives you strength to endure hardships with both patience and even with joy. It's a remarkably beautiful, mysterious thing. But God gives us strength to endure hardships with both patience and joy. That's part of the salvation that we have in Jesus. And that sixth, our salvation enables us to be uh, people that are, are grateful, people who abound in thanksgiving. Verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And what's important to notice here is that this continues the thought of verse 11. So the thanksgiving that's encouraged here in verse 12 does not happen in the absence of hardships, but in the very face of it that in Christ Jesus, we can give thanks at all times and in all circumstances, because no matter what occurs, we know that we're safe in the kingdom of God. We have faith, hope, and love. We're rooted and grounded in those things. We have already inherited salvation in Jesus. Our passage today said, God has already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In Colossians 3.3, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're already safe in God and His kingdom. So we can give thanks in all circumstances. Thanksgiving is sort of like the quintessential response for God's people in this book of Colossians, in this letter of Colossians. I think that's what Paul's trying to teach these young Christians. And he said that Christian maturity stems from a proper thankful relationship to God not as a remote or unconcerned being but as the wise and loving father of his people which takes us back to the first verses of Colossians and so throughout this letter we're going to see how significant thanksgiving is it's sort of the anchor that enables us to enjoy this great country of salvation it's almost like the compass that we use Paul says that he is he and his companions always thank God in Colossians 1.3, 3, he says that he wants the Colossians to be rooted and built up in God and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, he says in chapter 2, verse 7. In Colossians 3.17, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Those are, I just want to give you a sample of each chapter in the letter. Thanksgiving is this common thread throughout the letter to Colossians that enables us to live the salvation life that God is calling us to live. Or it's maybe the, the primary expression of our life of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, uh, Paul says that salvation means that we have been set free in Jesus verses 13 and 14 say God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so the country of God's salvation is not one of restriction and limits and slavery it's one of freedom and joy and abundance that only God can provide in and through Jesus The way of salvation is the way of redemption. It's the way of rescue. It's the way of freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free, Paul said in Galatians. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You have been transferred. A transfer of allegiance has occurred. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, of God's beloved Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, enjoy the freedom that you have in Jesus. So as I said before, I think one of the things that Paul is trying to do in these opening verses of Colossians is to situate these young Christians in this country of salvation, to help ground them in the new reality that is their life in Christ. And like the prayer that he prayed for the church in Ephesus, he wants them to be rooted and grounded in love that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, the enormous expansiveness of God's saving love, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's trying to get them to see the comprehensiveness of God's salvation, the largeness of God's love, that we may grow, to grow into the fullness of God is to explore, spend our whole lives learning to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think that's what these opening verses of Colossians are inviting these young Christians to do, and us as well, to explore the salvation that we have in Jesus, to explore how expansive God's love for us is. No matter how restricted we might feel in this life, nothing restricts God's love for us. And we have the joy of just exploring that our whole lives. So I think the question for us today is, what is your vision of salvation like? Is it large and expansive like the one that Colossians presents here? Or is it small and reduced? Have you been sold a truncated version of the gospel? Or has the gospel that's captured your heart one that's expansive and large and comprehensive? Have you come to know with all the saints how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus for you? For all of us, uh, the answer is no, that none of us can fully comprehend that. The joy that is set before us is the exploration. So my encouragement to us uh, during this Epiphany season is to explore that, to explore the love of God in Christ Jesus for us, to explore the glorious country of God's salvation, to thank Jesus for it, and allow it to seep into every nook and cranny of our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.